Hello, I'm Tony Hart, and this is another story from my podcast, Love from New York. This story is called The CIA, The KGB, and The Great Betrayal. My uncle was James Angleton, who ran counterintelligence in the CIA for 20 years. He was trained in spycraft during World War II by a man named Kim Philby of Britain's legendary MI6. Philby was a double agent on the payroll of the KGB, and whatever MI6 knew, the KGB knew. Angleton set up CIA counterintelligence in May of 1949, and Philby arrived in Washington, D.C. four months later, having gotten himself appointed MI6 liaison to the CIA. Philby now had access to all CIA and FBI files. He learned that the FBI was building its case against the Rosenberg spy ring and passed that information to the KGB, who normally would pull the spies back to Mother Russia. The KGB, however, knew that that would compromise Philby, so Soviet intelligence watched as the Rosenbergs were tried and executed. A book was recently released about Ethel Rosenberg. That reminded me of the Angleton-Philby story, and I thought you might like to hear it. I knew Jim Angleton because he married my aunt, Cicely Congdon. I met him when I was a child. It was love at first sight. There I was, a little kid in the very Scandinavian territory of Duluth, Minnesota, and in walks my glamorous Aunt Cicely with a man who looked like a Spanish movie star. He was tall and thin, with dancing dark eyes and a shock of black hair. He wore beautifully tailored Savile Row suits and a perfect trench coat. He was straight out of Rick's in Casablanca. Cicely used to tell the story about the first time she met Jim. It was in a room that was bare, except for a poster on the wall. It was El Greco's view of Toledo, the mountain with the castles of Toledo beneath an apocalyptic storm crashing through the dark sky, and right in front of that storm stood Jim. Cicely said he had an El Greco face, She was struck with love, as though it were lightning from the Toledo sky. Cicely Harriet Dotremo was a cross between Catherine Hepburn and Lucille Ball, the much-beloved family bohemian who got her Ph.D. in medieval French history and was known for attending a Washington soiree wearing a Balenciaga gown and tennis shoes. She was brilliant and funny, 
full of old-fashioned glamour, the kind of glamour only the very wealthy could afford. And Sicily could afford anything. Her grandfather was Chester Congdon, who had become one of the wealthiest men in Minnesota in the robber baron days of iron mining. Thanks to J.P. Morgan, that iron had become a big fat hunk of United States steel. Angleton came from a wealthy family himself. His father was Hugh Angleton, an old-fashioned, swashbuckling kind of guy who chased Pancho Villa in Mexico as a member of the cavalry under General John Pershing. Hugh saw a young woman on the streets of Nogales, a teenager, poor, no education, spoke only Spanish. Her name was Carmen Moreno, and Hugh fell madly in love and married her. To the enormous credit of the beautiful Carmen, she moved from the dirt streets of Nogales to the gilded palaces of European high society with great ease. She named her son James Jesus Angleton. Jim, who wanted to pass himself off as terribly British, never told anyone his middle name was Jesus. It wasn't exactly Anglo. And Cicely used to call her husband my Chicano. It was 1943, and Jim was drafted and chosen for the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the American Intelligence Unit in World War II. The Allies were about to invade Italy, and Jim spoke fluent Italian. He was sent to England to learn counterintelligence with MI6 in the very group we all came to know in John le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. One of his counterintelligence teachers was a man named Kim Philby, who was secretly one of the Cambridge Five, upper-class Brits who were recruited by communists at Cambridge. They became such hardcore Marxists. They took positions in the British government in order to spy for the Soviet Union. Kim Philby, on the payroll of the KGB, was passing secret Allied information to the Soviet Union. Philby actually became head of the anti-Soviet section of MI6, Moscow's most important spy was running the British agents in the USSR. They had a very short lifespan. Philby taught my uncle how to be a counter-spy, which is not James Bond, hunt the bad guys down and kill. That's a spy. A counter-spy is when you get someone inside the enemy camp to come over to your side. 
you get your information on the enemy network straight from that enemy. You do this either by planting a mole, or you find someone in their network and turn them, offering money or entrapping and blackmailing them, preferably by sex. It's called penetration for a reason. Jim was sent to Italy as head of the Italian OSS. His job was to capture Nazis. The Allies cut a deal with the Mafia. If Lucky Luciano helped the Allies take Italy, they would give Sicily back to the mob once Mussolini's people were gone. And so, the Allies and the Mafia fought their way through Sicily, onto the toe of the Italian boot, and all the way up to Rome, battling for every single inch of real estate. This was Nazi turf. Almost all of Europe was the property of the master race, and the Nazis were not about to go easily. It was a bloody battle. As the line of Nazi territory was forced north, it was Jim's job to move in behind the Allied forces and grab Nazis before they could escape. His team was also told to grab every piece of information about the Nazis they could find before the enemy could destroy it. Here was my Uncle Jim, a tubercular Yale poet, commanding an army of mafioso thugs. There were no holds barred. They were after Nazis and after every piece of information about the Nazis they could find. They broke into everything in Italy. They broke into military buildings and took code books, ciphers, maps. They broke into banks and took financial records. They broke into the homes of mistresses of the Nazi officials and liberated diaries. They found letters between Hitler and Mussolini that were used in the Nuremberg trials. They found a hidden stash of gold and stolen artworks. They bribed everyone. Half the Italian police force was on their payroll and forked over police files. The Vatican got intelligence reports from every diocese in the world, and Jim bought those reports. They grabbed everything they could grab. But the real problem was grabbing the Nazis themselves. No one knew who the Nazi officers were, what they looked like, where they lived in Italy, or where they were headquartered. As Allied troops advanced, the Nazi officers simply shed their uniforms, donned the clothing of civilians, and fled with the crowds. Here is what Jim did so his troops could capture them. First, he had his team visit every photographer in Rome. The Nazi officials were proud of their Italian conquest. 
and often took photographs of themselves and their fellow officers to send to their families at home. Jim compiled a huge mug book of Nazi faces and names. They had broken into so many buildings, they built a massive book of military intelligence offices, complete with floor plans and the location of critical documents to be seized. Jim searched for postcards of villas throughout Italy and learned which villas were used as quarters for the military brass. Now the troops knew which villas to capture. Angleton amassed this data in area-specific notebooks, which were given to each Allied unit as they advanced on a town. The Allied troops knew which buildings to seize first, which villas to search for the officers, and what the officers looked like. Angleton's unit captured over a thousand Nazi intelligence agents and overturned an entire Nazi network. Then, the war was done. Angleton had become a superb Nazi hunter. And that was the problem. Jim was now a smart, vicious, upper-class pit bull. His killer instincts and his killer intellect had been fused. There was no stopping him. The CIA was formed in 1947 by the men who ran the OSS. They had all been Nazi hunters. They were upper-class wasps, mainly Yaleys, like Engleton. Their sense of being a ruling elite was so strong, they became a shadow government. The agency answered to no one. There was no controlling authority. The CIA was a secret organization. These were the men who had defeated Hitler. They believed in themselves. They came back to an America drowning in paranoia. The Cold War had come on fast. The Soviet Union had swallowed up Eastern Europe, and they detonated an atom bomb apparently made from plans stolen by a spy ring in New Mexico. The reaction was the HUAC hearings, Senator Joe McCarthy's witch hunt, and J. Edgar Hoover's desire to throw all the commies into jail. It was the perfect setup for a very powerful CIA. Alan Dulles became the director, and he appointed Jim head of counterintelligence. Angleton did what he knew how to do. He set up a database of suspected communist sympathizers under an operation called Operation Lingual. It was based on letters that were mailed between the Soviet Union and America. It was radically illegal. 
Here's how it worked. The CIA took over a small building on the edge of Idlewild Airport, the original name of Long Island's JFK Airport. At night, letters to and from the USSR were pulled from the main post offices in New York and Washington, D.C. And every morning, a small plane would fly between two to six sacks of mail into Idlewild. The envelopes were photographed, the film was sent to Washington, and the addresses and return addresses went into a database. Soon, Jim had a watch list, and now he wanted some of the letters opened, so the operation was expanded. They were still at the airport, but now they had a lab. Tea kettles full of boiling water were used to steam the envelopes open. The letters were photographed, and the envelopes were reclosed with a special glue. The process was so efficient that the letters were only kept out of circulation for a single day. At one point, they were checking 5,000 to 15,000 letters a night. Oblingual ran from 1952 to 1973. The total numbers on Lingual were these. 2,300,000 names compiled. An estimated 28 million envelopes photographed. And an unestimated number of those envelopes opened. Jim's database had more than 2 million names that morphed over time from Bella Abzug and Martin Luther King to Mark Rudd and Eldridge Cleaver. Oplingual was completely illegal, and Jim never considered the Fourth Amendment ban on illegal searches and seizures. He wanted the information, and he took it. Oplingual remained secret for two decades because the group running it was small and because it was not on site in Langley. As soon as Kim Philby saw that Angleton had become a power in the CIA, he got himself appointed liaison between MI6 and the CIA and moved to Washington in 1949. He stayed for three years. The Soviet Union's major spy in Great Britain now had clearance to all levels of FBI and CIA activities, including those regarding the USSR. Philby was a direct feed from the CIA to the Soviet Union. But more than that, Philby had access to Angleton. He and Jim picked up their friendship where they had left off and spent so much time together 
particularly drinking, that they became known as the Kim and Jim Show. In their marathon drinking sessions, Philby must have learned everything he wanted to know from Jim. Philby was born for betrayal. The number of people who were killed because Kim Philby informed on them to the KGB is probably in the thousands. The CIA ran dozens of operations to support groups opposed to Soviet power in Eastern Europe, and every single one failed. All the participants and many of their families were killed. Philby had passed the details to the KGB. There were several insurgents who survived one operation, and they said, quote, they knew we were coming, and nobody figured it out. Kim Philby was involved with dozens of failed operations and hundreds of captured and killed agents at both MI6 and the CIA, and nobody figured it out. You know the movie The Third Man with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton. The screenplay was written by Graham Greene, who had also been trained at MI6 by Kim Philby. In the movie, the character that Orson Welles plays was based directly on Philby. Graham Greene cleaned the character up as best he could. Graham loved Philby, but he still came up with Harry Lyme, the ruthless wretch of a villain who sold bad penicillin on the black market. It was in this period that the FBI was closing in on the Rosenberg spy ring and the Communist Party network in America. Philby told the KGB, but they were fearful that any action to protect the Rosenbergs might make it obvious that the information had come from Philby, so they couldn't do a thing but watch as the group was prosecuted and the Rosenbergs were executed. Then, in 1951, Philby's old friend, Guy Burgess, who was staying with Philby in Washington, defected, along with Donald McLean, to Moscow, just days ahead of being arrested as a Soviet spy. People knew they had been tipped off by a third man, and fingers pointed straight at Philby, who left America. It took the most obvious defections to make people realize that Kim Philby, the man running secret operations against the Russians after 1944, was a Russian agent himself. Jim was in shock. He refused to believe that Philby was a traitor. His mind simply couldn't navigate those rough emotional waters. 
my Aunt Cicely, said that Philby haunted Jim like a ghost. And then Angleton lost it. The betrayal by Philby was so powerful for Jim that his mind slipped. He became paranoid and decided that there were Soviet moles inside the CIA. He went on a wild mole hunt. He nearly destroyed the agency, and Angleton was so powerful, he knew so much about so many people that no one could stop him. He was finally stopped by the agency itself. The CIA director, William Colby, leaked information on Angleton's spy methods to the New York Times. How did Philby get away with it? The answer is class. It was all about the class consciousness, or the arrogance, if you prefer, of the elite. The sense of class was so strong in those days that no one could imagine a member of their own kind would turn against the group. It was simply inconceivable. The elite were so impressed with themselves, so obsessed with their considerable power in society, their narcissism was so ingrained, they were literally incapable of comprehending treachery. And so James Jesus Angleton, the CIA's chief spy catcher, gave away every intelligence secret he knew to a spy. <laughs>